Amen. If you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 14. The book of Acts, chapter 14. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 28 of Acts, chapter 14. Acts, chapter 14, verses 8 through 28. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. <clears throat> Titled this sermon, Remaining a Faithful Servant Regardless. I think as we read through these verses, you'll see why we have that title. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. And had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looking intently at him. And seeing that he had faith to be made well. Said in a loud voice. Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian. The gods have come down to to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, who was, uh, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good food and gladness, Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to the city, And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Paul and Barnabas returned uh, to Antioch. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga and went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, there they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. As followers of Christ, we are servants of Christ. If we say that we are a Christian, then we are proclaiming to be a follower of the 
faith. We are proclaiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should aim to be faithful servants, regardless of what comes our way. In our text, we see the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas. They will face trials and they will have victories in their first missionary journey. And we have it recorded for us by Luke. And it gives us an example to follow as we see Paul and Barnabas being faithful servants, regardless of the circumstances that they are faced with. Interestingly enough, as we read through this passage of Scripture, we notice the faithfulness of the apostles, but we also notice the fickleness of a pagan crowd. God uses Paul to heal a man that was lame from birth, and the crowd responds by wanting to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because they believe that they are gods. And right afterwards, some Jews from Iconium show up, and they persuade the the same crowd to stone Paul as an imposter and then they drag him out of the city because they believe he is dead. However, he's not dead and he gets up and he went, goes back into the same city that he was just stoned in and the very next day he makes a 60 mile journey to Derby. and through all this, Paul remains faithful. He continues to preach the gospel. So let's break this passage of scripture down this morning and I want us to see how we can be faithful servants regardless of the circumstances that we face first of all faithful servants humbly proclaim the gospel regardless of location faithful servants humbly proclaim the gospel regardless of location there are people all over the world that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ there are others that know little about scripture and many people that are lost in their sin there are people that are living their life with no hope and we should be forced to ask ourselves how can we reach them and part of that is to proclaim the gospel regardless of location we have talked about how Paul and Barnabas wherever they went they preached the gospel we we've studied that in the previous weeks and that we are to do the same but Here we see that, first of all, uh, how does Paul proclaim the gospel in this passage of Scripture? First of all, we see Paul preaching in the open. Preaching in the open. Now, I'm not saying that we should be out open-air preaching. But I do want us to take a look at Paul. Paul's in Lystra. And Lystra was a small town. It's roughly 20 miles south of Iconium, where he was previously at. There's not a synagogue in Lystra. And if you recall what, uh, what we've seen in the past, that Paul reportedly uh, would go into the synagogue and that's where he would uh, preach the gospel in the synagogues of the city. But there is not a synagogue, so that must mean that Paul can't proclaim the gospel, right? Because that's what he usually does. He goes into the synagogue to proclaim the gospel. So this must be a sign that he's not supposed to proclaim the gospel. Wrong. Now, that's sometimes the way we operate, right? If there's some sort of blocking, well, that must mean I'm not supposed to say anything. Apparently, what Paul is doing is preaching in the open marketplace or on the street to anyone that's willing to listen to what he has to say. And church, I read this, and, and to be honest, I'm put to shame. 
I look back on my life and I think how I used to go out on the street and just share the gospel with random strangers and anyone that would give me a ear to listen to what I have to say. And granted, I still share the gospel with folks, but I think, man, I'm not sharing the gospel like I used to early on in my ministry. We read this statement and there was a man sitting there who couldn't use his feet. Furthering the fact that Paul's out in the public market. And this man's listening to Paul speak in the public. And the Lord gave Paul the insight to, to look at this man and see that he had the faith to be healed. And let me stop real quick and just say that God healed many people in Scripture apart from their faith to be healed. But this man had the faith to be healed. And then there were times when, when um, God heals people in response to their faith. And Paul's response was to say in a very loud voice, the scripture says, to this man who had been lame from birth, stand upright on your feet. And what does the text say? It says the man sat there and uh, Paul said, you know, what are you doing? That's not what the text says, right? And it doesn't say that the man sat there and said, well, you're, you're crazy, Paul. I'm lame. I've been lame from birth. That's not what it says. It says the man sprang up and began walking. And that word spring up means to leap. So just so we're clear, the man jumped to his feet. Right? He jumped up. He jumps to his feet straight up and begins to put one foot in front of the other and walk around. Don't miss this. The next part of what we have here is vital. What did the crowd do? How did they respond? They lift up their voices in Laconian, it says. Stop there. The reason I want us to stop there is because neither Paul nor Barnabas knew Laconian. And they would have no idea what these people are saying. This is exactly why Luke mentions it. Let me tell you. Why else is this critical? Because it shows us the dedication of Paul and Barnabas to advance the gospel. Church, how often do we use the tiniest of things to keep us from sharing the gospel? Let alone going, ever going on a mission trip to a foreign country. We'll say things like this. These are the kind of things that we say in our mind and maybe even to other people. Well, what if I offend that person? I better not share the gospel with them. Or what if they don't like me? Or what if I have bad breath? Or something. You know, we, we find the simplest, littlest things to keep us from sharing the gospel. We'll say things like this before serving on a mission trip. Well, well uh, that means I'd have to use my vacation time. Or I don't know if I could raise enough funds to go on a mission trip. Or that's just too far away. Or I'm scared. Or I don't know the language. Paul and Barnabas, regardless of a language barrier, go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must proclaim the gospel as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have to proclaim the gospel. It's not a, it's not a, we'll do it if you want to. We are commanded to proclaim the gospel as servants of Jesus Christ, regardless of location. But I also want us to see that in this situation um, of Paul proclaiming the gospel regardless of location, uh, I want us to see this humility in the midst of confusion. Notice the response of the people. They say that gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Again, Paul and Barnabas have no clue what's being said, but they liken Barnabas to Zeus, most likely because he was the older and larger in stature. stature. And Paul they likened to Hermes. Hermes was the orator of Zeus. And Paul had, not, uh, ha- Paul had done most of the or- orating at this time. And, and so why did they do this? Why did they liken them to these gods? Well, there was a legend that the Roman poet Ovid wrote about. According to Ovid's story, there was a pious old couple who lived in the region of Lystra, which is where they're at. And Jupiter and Mercury, which are the equivalents of Zeus and Hermes, had went from door to door and no one would invite them in. And however, when they came to this pious old couple, they, the old couple fed them and they gave them a bed for the night not knowing they were gods. And because of, of their generous hospitality, the two gods turned the poor couple's cottage into a golden roof temple and destroyed all the selfish people who refused to take them in. That was the legend. And this was the legend that had been passed down. And so the people of Lystra feared that they're going to make the same mistake And so they hurried and they offer sacrifices to these visitors whom they believe to be gods. Please notice the response of Paul and Barnabas in the midst of this confusion. They could have easily lived it up. They could have easily taken advantage of what's going on. They could have thought, man, this is great. These guys are sacrificing to us. Think of how much money we could have. Think of how great we could be. They could have done that. That wasn't their reaction. Instead, their reaction was a humble one. A one that pointed away from who they were. And one that pointed to the one true living God. At some point, somehow, Paul and Barnabas figure out what's going on. They figure out what's being said. And they couldn't believe it. And they tear their garments. They rush out into the crowd of people. And the text says they're crying out, perhaps perhaps might be better translated screaming about the living God who had given them what they had and it would seem from verse 18 that they could barely even get these words out as the people were bent in offering them sacrifices in fact it would seem like the message doesn't even get completed as the gospel is not fully presented and most likely when the crowd realized that Paul and Barnabas aren't really gods they would have just kind of angrily dispersed I mean, stop and think about this. Paul and Barnabas had just healed a man who I'm certain everyone knew was blamed from birth. They would have known that. And, and they heal this, this man. And so everybody thought, well, these, this has to be the gods visiting us. And think of all the people that will flock from miles around to our little town. Think of how it's going to help our economy. Think of how famous we're going to be. And then Paul and Barnabas are like, we're just like you guys. We're just normal people. And all the wind is kind of let out of their sails, so to speak. 
Anyway, most likely Paul began to scream at them that the reason they came was to proclaim the gospel so that they would turn from their vain idol worship to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Now it's interesting how when Paul would speak to the Jews, he didn't start with creation, but here he does. Instead, when he spoke to the Jews, he would argue from scripture, but but they already had a, a level of scripture knowledge. Here he starts with creation because he's speaking to a bunch of pagans. And so he starts by letting them know the living God is the creator of all things. And then look at verse 16. Paul says this, In the past generation, God allowed all nations to walk in their own way. This speaks as to why people worship idols. Because God has allowed it. And it is only by his patience that he has not destroyed anybody in their sin. Furthermore, God has left a witness that his indeed uh, that this witness does indeed exist and that he indeed exists. And the fact that he has done good towards them by giving them rain and, and fruitful seasons and satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. Paul's line of reasoning with the people of Lystra is straightforward and one that he will, he will again revisit in Romans chapter 1. He again talks about in Acts chapter 18. It's simply this. Through creation, God has revealed himself to every single person and every person is therefore accountable to God because they can look at creation and see that there is a God. And man have invented myths and continue to invent myths so as not to be held accountable to God. And at the root of all those myths is the idea that God does not exist. That he, he can't exist. And these myths are perpetuated only to rid man of accountability to say, well, I don't have to be accountable to God. He, he cannot exist. Now listen carefully because there's a very important theological fact right here in these verses. In this passage of scripture, and that is this, the testimony of creation is only sufficient to condemn mankind for their rebellion against God. Creation is not sufficient to redeem mankind of their sin. It's only sufficient to condemn mankind. In order to be saved, people must hear the gospel, which tells of God sending a Savior, Jesus Christ, who offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who put their trust in Him. Now, I want to take a few moments here, make a few theological points, because I believe we often struggle with what the Bible teaches, and we often don't understand what the Scripture teaches. I believe this is vital because um, latest studies show that the American population, evangelical Christians, have little knowledge of theology and what the Bible actually teaches. You know, I can remember as a young Christian being asked this question, will God judge the person in some remote parts of the world that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? In fact, I was asked that question on the street one time when I was sharing the gospel with someone. They said, will God judge the person that's never heard the gospel? And I said, yes. And they said, well, I don't want any part of that kind of God. Or how about this question? Why would God send an innocent person to hell? 
Why would God allow so many people go so long without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? I believe those questions is one reason why I felt drawn to get my master's degree in theology. I want to answer these questions this morning quickly with you because I think our text causes us to raise those questions. Let me start by saying this. God owes no one mercy. We have to understand that God owes no one mercy. He owes no nation mercy and he knows no human mercy. No one is owed mercy by God. Why? Why is no one owed mercy by God? Because every person is in rebellion to God. Everyone. Adam was our representative and he rebelled against God. And, and every sin that every person ever, every person that's ever born is born into sin and born into rebellion to God. And the just penalty of our rebellion is God's deserved judgment. Everyone's born into sin. God is perfectly just in letting the nations walk in their own way, as Paul says. He's perfectly just in doing so. Paul put it, without ever giving them a revelation of the gospel. Because every single person has suppressed the truth that's revealed to us in creation. So because of this, God never sends an innocent person to hell. You know why? Because no one is innocent. No one. Oh, we like to pretend like we can somehow judge the morality of God and somehow that we can hold God accountable to our fallen notion of what is moral and what isn't moral. But in truth, we can't. And as we said last week, the grace of God is not dependent on us, but it's solely dependent on God. With that said, how should this affect how you and I share the gospel? How should the truth that, 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 that there are people that have never heard the gospel will one day go to hell because they've never heard the gospel? How should that affect how we share the gospel. How, what, what do we do when someone raises one of these questions? Do we stand there and argue with them? What I do is very simply let them know that we are speaking of their eternal destiny. And they've heard the gospel. And how God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the savior from sin. How will you respond? Listen, church. Here in these verses, we see Paul at least getting to the point that everyone stands guilty before God and creation points that out and they were a confused people and Paul and Barnabas humbly, humbly express that they are following idols in the midst of confusion. As faithful servants, they preached in an open and they were humble in the midst of confusion regardless of the circumstance. Now notice what else a faithful servant does. A faithful servant proclaims the gospel regardless of persecution. A faithful servant proclaims the gospel regardless of persecution. Remember how Paul and Barnabas were forced to flee Antioch and Iconium? If you were here in the previous weeks, 
They continue to preach the gospel. They come into Lyconia and they continue to preach the gospel. According to verse 7, that's what it said. And so they were run out of town and they came to another town and, and they just continue to preach the gospel. And, they, and, and look what happens. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they show up and they persuade the people that just, just uh, thought that Paul and Barnabas, the very same people that thought they were gods, these very same people now stone Paul and they drag him out of the city and they leave him for dead. I can't help but wonder if Paul's mind didn't flash back to Stephen. Remember him? Remember Paul standing there as Stephen's being stoned, holding the coats of the people? I wonder if as those rocks were pelting Paul in the head, if his mind flashed back to Stephen who he stood by and watched people kill him. Let me just say, church, at this moment, we know very little of persecution in America. We think if someone looks at us funny, it's persecution. We think, oh, if we lose our tax exemption status as a church, it's persecution. We find these little itty bitty things to Pretend like we're persecuted. Like we're going through persecution. Well, try having rocks crash against your skull for preaching Jesus. There lay Paul. A blood spattered, broken frame. Lying beneath the rubble of rocks. What a shame. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine looking at this man, Paul? What a shame. He's no longer alive. We had such great hopes for him. Think of all the things he could have done as the disciples gather around him. As he's drug out the city and they gather around Paul, this man who's dead. <laughs> and I can't help but wonder how he got, I, I'm weird and I picture things funny and I just wonder if Paul like just opened one eye as they're all kind of standing around looking at him. You know, one eye opens, then another, and then he stands up. What did he do? He didn't do what you and I would do, right? Well, folks, time for a vacation. I mean, that's what I probably would have done. I better take a break from this Christianity stuff. These dudes just pelted me in the head with rocks, drug me out of the city, left me for dead. And, and by the grace of God, I'm alive. I better take a vacation. I better get out of here. Paul walks right back into the city. Can you imagine this man caked with blood and dirt gets up walks back into the city where he was just stoned and drug out and left for dead. Nothing's going to stop Paul from preaching the gospel. In fact, the very next day, he then walks to another city, Derby, to preach the gospel. And as we said in the beginning, some 60 miles away, Paul, after being stoned in one city, walks 60 miles to another city in order to preach the gospel. Then as they went back through Perga, they preached the gospel. Church, the 
The persistence in preaching the gospel must be what, what is evident in our life. That we preach the gospel regardless of location. And we preach the gospel regardless of persecution. That we should be motivated to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of us have never known any kind of persecution. And for sure not what Paul and Barnabas went through. What, what, what do we face in America? Somebody criticizing us. And I wonder just how, how we respond when somebody criticizes us. Are we like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. A faithful servant in the face of criticism preaches the gospel. We've grown so apathetic in America. We just think everybody else is like us. We just think, we, we think that all the city of Washington must be in church on Sunday morning. And yet there's lost people all around us. We work with them. We see them in the grocery store. Everywhere we see them and we don't proclaim the gospel. I pray to God that persecution would come to America so we would preach the gospel. Because that's what it needs. Because we're so apathetic in our Christianity. Perhaps you would say, I've, I've never faced such criticism. That's because maybe no one's come against you because you've never bothered to share the gospel. Church, we can't quit. We can't stop. We're prone to wimp out over the easiest little things and get our feelings hurt and just give up being a faithful servant. A faithful servant proclaims the gospel regardless of location or persecution. Thirdly, a faithful servant encourages other faithful servants regardless of trials. A faithful servant encourages other faithful servants regardless of trials. As we read through Acts 14, we see a little shift in the language from verse 21 to verse 22. When we look at verse 21, we notice that Paul and Barnabas went to Derby, and their focus was that they preached the gospel to that city and they made many disciples. And then we notice on their return journey to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, it says that they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them. There was a shift from being evangelistic in nature as they went to, to serve and to, and to proclaim the gospel to a more pastoral in nature as they are on their return trip to the cities where they had preached the gospel priorly. It's a, it's a strong possibility that they felt that since they were already driven out of these cities, they perhaps would be killed this time around. And therefore, they would no longer have any missionary journeys. However, what they did do is they took the disciples and they began to encourage them. Those people who had converted to Christianity and, and these new believers could now carry the work of evangelizing their cities and taking responsibility for sharing the gospel with the people that they know. And share of the grace that they had received. And so these faithful servants are being encouraged to remain faithful. Look at what it says. Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well that sounds like a far cry from some of the things we say today doesn't it? Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Are you kidding me? That means that... that that we're going to have tough times? That means I'm going to have trials? That means it, it won't necessarily be my best life now? Or that every day won't really be a Friday? 
Let me just say, church, when someone becomes a believer, we would be smart to warn them that trouble will come. I mean, this is one of the main tactics that Satan uses. Peter warns us that the devil is a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. But then Peter says, resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The call to follow Christ is a call to suffering. It's not a call to wealth and it's not a call to prosperity. It's a call to suffering and faithful servants will not only encourage other faithful servants in the midst of that suffering, but they will encourage them to understand that the call is to go through suffering. There are times that King Jesus permits the enemy to afflict us and that 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 could be for any number of reasons. Could be so that we more fully trust God. It could be so that we lean on him more instead of our own understanding. No follower of Christ gets an exemption from trials, but instead we should be encouraged that we will come out the other side and that God's hand will lead us and we can be strengthened through them and that our faith will be stronger on the other side of this. This does not say that salvation comes through suffering, but instead that salvation brings suffering. That's a constant theme of Paul's. Even though it's not a theme of cultural Christianity today, those who suffer for and with Christ will share with his glory. That's what Paul says. No cross, no crown. Suffering before glory. In order to have the resurrection, you first must have the crucifixion. Here's the thing. When we enter a time of trial, you and I should do so with joy. Why? Because of what we read. What Peter, what Peter said, and many passages like it, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. When we enter into a trial, we should do so with joy. Because God's there. And he will strengthen, he will restore, he will confirm, and he will establish. Next, let's see that a faithful servant helps organize the church under godly leaders regardless of worldly standards. A faithful servant servant helps organize the church under godly leaders regardless of worldly standards. You know, the world has a lot to say about leadership, doesn't it? I mean, we can go and look at all kinds of leadership books. In fact, typically we think that the person that rises to the top of the company, that person must be a good leader. And often it does not matter how they get there. We just think, well, they've got to be a good leader. Even right now, the debate politically is focused on who supposedly can best lead our country. And we have a lot of standards that we hold up. And often those standards are not biblical in nature, but rather they are worldly in nature. Look with me at verse 23 and see what it says. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Who is they? It's Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas looked at the early church and felt that they need some leadership. 
And so they appointed elders. Now, we know from Scripture that the church is the bride of Christ, but we also know that it's a living organism that is made up of people. This church has people in it. That's what makes up the church. Within the body of Christ are people, and these people have varying gifts. You have different gifts as the body of Christ, and those gifts can be used to help the body function. We looked at that when we went through our study in 1 Corinthians. However, the leaders of the church give direction to the church. And if they give direction, then they need to be walking with the Lord. And if the leadership of the church fails to walk with the Lord, it's soon going to become a dead church. Folks, leaders have to be godly. And, and I'm quite certain that, that when, when these folks were appointed elders, that the list of qualifications that Paul will later lay out in Timothy and Titus were used. They did not just grab anyone like, oh, well, that guy, he looks like he might be a good church leader. But they made sure they were godly leaders. They also understood organization was a must. If there is no organization at all in the church, then it's going to struggle and churches have to have organization. Paul and Barnabas were traveling around establishing new churches and then appointed elders, and elders were long-term residents that would give oversight to the church. Again, organization. If you're in a church and everyone does whatever they want, they're just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and I don't care about any oversight, and I don't care about any organization, that church is going to end up in a mess. Likewise, any pastor or elder that only desires to do what the people want them to do and only seek to please the people will soon, will soon learn that by trying to please everyone you really please no one someone has to give oversight in the baptist church which is what we are that person that is assigned to give oversight is the pastor who holds the same office in the bible as elder in fact there are three terms used in scripture that are interchangeable elder overseer and pastor they're spiritually mature people able to teach, give oversight to the church. And finally, in the case of pastor, they're devoted to ministry of the word of God and they're to be financially supported. Now, we don't have elders here. But if we did, because in all honesty, I believe that's probably the biblical view. We would screen men to make sure that they were qualified biblically. We would allow congregational input and we would have the congregation vote on them. But we currently don't have elders except one, which is me. Now here's the deal. Nowhere in the qualifications of elders are we to take the world standards to appoint them. Nowhere. Nowhere are we to say, well, you know, in order to find an elder in the Baptist church, in order to find a pastor, we better take the standards of the world and say this is what a pastor needs to be. Nowhere do we find that in Scripture but rather biblical qualifications are laid out. This is the kind of person that they need to be. And so a faithful servant helps organize the church under godly leaders, regardless of the worldly standards, was what Paul and Barnabas did. Fifthly, a faithful servant is accountable regardless of popular opinion. Look with me at verse 26 and 27. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived there, it says they gathered the church together. And what they do? They declared all that God done with them and how he had opened the door for the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas gave a report of what God had done. Can you imagine the stories that they had? 
I'm certain the church at Antioch had been praying for them and, and, and praying for others to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now Paul and Barnabas come back and they deliver the news that the door to the Gentiles had been opened. What great news! The popular opinion of today says this, you don't need accountability. In fact, that opinion has crept into the church. We don't, we don't need anyone to hold us accountable to anything. You know what we like to say, what people like to say, especially pastors are really guilty of saying this all the time. Well, I'm accountable to God. And that's it. What a load. It's not what scripture teaches. How ridiculous. A faithful servant welcomes accountability. Regardless of popular opinion, regardless of what people say, they welcome it because they know that ultimately I will answer to the Lord. You know what? I won't answer to you and how I lead this church, but I will answer to the Lord. And because of that, I welcome accountability for someone to say, I don't know that that's how you should have done that. I'm talking about reporting and issues of sin, not just issues of preference. Like, I don't like the carpet, so let's have a fight about it. But serious accountability. The church has a responsibility to pray for those that lead. And those that lead have a responsibility to report on what God is doing. Faithful servant is, count is accountable regardless of popular opinion. Sixthly, and I only have one more after this. I know you guys are like, this dude's talking long. A faithful servant glorifies God regardless of self. A faithful servant glorifies God regardless of self. Notice that Paul and Barnabas did not point to all the things that they did and all the accomplishments they made. Paul was not like, you should have seen me and those Gentiles. You know, you know I'm a lawyer, right? You remember that I'm a lawyer. And I showed them Gentiles. Instead, they pointed to what God had done and how he opened the door to the Gentiles. The faithful servant does not exalt self, but instead exalts Christ. They don't brag on self, but all credit goes to the Lord because if the Lord does not do it, it does not get done. Paul and Barnabas were totally dependent on the Lord. And whether there was a response or not, they knew that it was from the Lord. And they gave him the glory. And they knew it was only by his grace that they were able to accomplish anything. And so they gave all the credit to the Lord. It was the Lord that did this. It was the Lord that opened the door. It was the Lord that led us. It was all the Lord. Lastly, a faithful servant knows when to take a break. Look at verse 28. They remained no little time with the disciples. Can I just say that this is one of the hardest things for a faithful servant to recognize? Please hear me out. I want you to walk away from here thinking, you see... Pastor said we need to take a break from Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. It is widely believed that Paul at this time, when he went back to Antioch, wrote the book of Galatians. And he was there between 12 and 18 months before he left again on another journey. Paul still did ministry in Antioch. 
But the point being, he wasn't out on a missionary journey. Church, listen to me very carefully. A faithful servant knows when to take a break. There are people everywhere, in particular pastors, that burn out on a constant and a consistent basis because they don't know when to take a break. They spend all their time giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and giving and never getting. They don't know when to take a break. I know in my own ministry, early on, there were times I was working 70 and 80 hours a week in ministry. Just not taking a break. And I worked myself into the ground. I can tell you that I need days off. I need days off during the week. I need to go home and be with my family. I can tell you I need vacation during the year. I can tell you I need to take time to pray, to spend with the Lord, or I'll be drained and I will burn out. We're all wired differently, but the faithful servant watches their life. They pay attention to what's going on in their life and they say, I need to take a break. Faithful servant knows when to take a break. In closing, let me ask you this this morning. It's a real simple question. Are you faithful? Are you faithful? Didn't ask you if you were successful. Are you faithful? You can be successful without being faithful. We have in this passage examples of faithful servants, Paul and Barnabas. And when you enter into glory, will you hear those words from the Savior? Well done, good, and faithful servant. Are you faithful? You say, well, what do you mean? We just talked about it. Are you faithful to share the gospel regardless of location? Are you faithful to share the gospel regardless of persecution? Are you faithful to encourage other people regardless of trials? Are you faithful to allow and encourage others to follow godly leaders? Are you faithful to welcome accountability in your life? Are you faithful in glorifying God and not yourself? Are you faithful to know when you need to take a break? Are you faithful? If you examine your life this morning, if you sit there in the pew and you say, God, am I faithful to you in all these areas? What's the answer? What's the answer, church? I would hope that we'd be faithful. But if you're like me, you got some work to do. This morning, I'm going to be standing down front. 
Maybe you want somebody to pray with you. I'd be glad to pray with you. Maybe you want to come and pray on your own. You can do that. You can pray in your pew. I just want to offer you the opportunity if you need somebody to pray with. I'm willing to do that. If you, if you just say, Pastor, I'm, I'm not being faithful in, in certain areas and I need prayer, whatever it is, I'm willing to pray with you this morning. Maybe this morning you'd say, I don't even know Christ. I'd be glad to share with you how you can know Christ as your Savior. I'd love to do that with you this morning. I'll be down front. You'd be willing to come when we sing this closing song. Let's go ahead and bow for prayer this morning.